Patrick Attaway, and this is Demise of the Podcast. My podcast where I talk about writing, specifically today, Zev Good's writing. We're continuing with all about the Benjamins, but of course, we have our typical podcast housekeeping to do. And the first thing I want to mention is that I'm in a different room. I'm back in the old guitar room. I was in my office, but now the guitar room slash my old bedroom is now my office. I cut my toe open, moving my big-ass wooden desk that used to belong to my mother into this room and all of my work equipment in here. So I've got a futon. I've got um, four guitar amplifiers. One of them is a Marshall Stack. I've got all my guitars in here. None of uh, a couple of things of vinyl records, yeah, but it's cramped. But uh, there's space enough to, to move around. There's actually more space in here than when I, I use this as a bedroom, believe it or not. So, what else is going on in the world of Patrick? Well, a good friend of mine who I talked about in a previous podcast because I wrote a poem about him. I wrote a poem called Fallen Idol about him. And he was recently, he, he's pleading guilty to a charge of online pornography. And he was a teacher of mine. He was a very close friend of mine. Um, our friendship continued after high school. And his wife recently came out and talked about how she was actually present for a lot of the things that were going on. And one of the things that she denied was that there was any sort of pornography uh, being exchanged because the original charge was that he was soliciting a minor. Um, The thing is, apparently this was in a chat room and this person was interacting with more than just him in a chat room. It wasn't just a one-on-one thing. And after my friend and other people in this chat room were talking about adult things, this person said, well, I'm not actually over 18. I'm a minor. So, um, according to the wife, he said, well, you're using a picture which shows tattoos if that's actually you, in which you say it is you, then you're over 18 because no one has that many tattoos if they're under 18. There are people under 18 who have tattoos. Uh, they get them illegally, but uh, or I think you can get them with a parent's permission. I'm not sure. But anyway, he knew there was something up, and yet he still got vetted into this terrible thing that has destroyed his family's life. And I don't know the full story, but I knew I knew him pretty well. I'm going to open this ginger ale, so hold on. And I do know that I never heard of him being perverted or anything with other people. It's not to say it didn't happen, but he is my friend, so we tend to believe our friends. But uh, I also don't approve of an adult whether it be male or female, trying to have adult conversations with people under 18. Um, Of course, it it would have to be under 16 in Georgia. 
the age of consent in Georgia is 16, which brings us to another topic. I saw a tweet recently about uh, a guy saying that if you're 23 and you're dating a 17-year-old, you're a pedophile. Uh, First of all, it's actually legal in a lot of states to be with someone who is under 18 if they have... um, most states have a uh, age of consent law, and for some states it's 18, some states it's 17, some states it's 16. For a long time, I think Mississippi or Alabama was 13, which is really messed up. But the idea behind that is not to stop pedophiles. Uh, pedophilia is the attraction to children who have not undergone puberty yet. That is a very clear and distinct difference because no one who has sexual relations with a seven-year-old is committing statutory rape. They're committing child rape or child molestation. There's a difference. Uh, Not defending those who have sex with 13 or 14-year-olds. Don't get me wrong. That's wrong too. In fact, you might even say that someone who is within the bounds of the law is doing something wrong if they're 23 and they have sex with a 17-year-old. <clears throat> By the way, I'm not sure that's so wrong because my wife is actually five years younger than me. I met her when I was 24, yeah, and she was 20. So there's almost a five-year age difference between her and I. So there was a time when I was in my 20s and she was under 18. If I'd met her before then, would it have been morally wrong for me to be with her? I don't know, because it didn't happen that way. But I think that people are really into misusing terms, and they're really into judging other people. So here's where I stand on it. Pedophilia is wrong, having sex with someone who is not of sound mind and emotional maturity to have sex with you at any given age is wrong too. Now, this person also said that if you're 50 and you have sex with a 30-year-old, you're also a pedophile. That is incredibly ignorant and stupid. Okay, so someone who is 30, who is a consenting adult, can do whatever the fuck they want. And to call someone in their 50s who has sex with that 30-year-old a pervert, well, yeah, you can do that, but you're kind of an asshole. Granted, I've always liked older women, so... My fantasy as a teenager was always to have an older woman have sex with me. But, of course, as an adult, I see that that would have been weird and wrong. But, you know, teenagers don't have sound thinking. Most people on Twitter don't have sound thinking, you know? Which brings us to the writing community. Zev and I were talking about the podcast, and he said, Well, you know, if you want to distance yourself from me, that's fine, given the recent controversy. Uh, His controversy was pretty minor, but basically he called out people in the hashtag writing community for retweeting links to people's books, but not actually buying those books. So, in a sense, if your book, if a link to your book gets 100 retweets, which mine got, I think, around 1,000 retweets, and you only sell one copy, there's something wrong with that. 
I completely agree with that. There are some people who think it doesn't matter how many retweets you get as long as you get a sale. Well, actually, supporting each other in the writing community would would obviously mean buying each other's work and reading it and giving feedback on it, would it not? Uh, I have given free copies of my books away. Uh, I've always made free links to my books available. And what's weird is that even though they're free, people don't always take you up on that offer. Now, I've had people DM me and ask me for those links, but that's pretty rare. But I always provide them, no matter how nice or rude they are, because I have had people who were kind of rude about it, but whatever. The customer is always right, as they say, and your audience is your customer. Now, some people may not believe that, but it's, it's sort of like someone coming up to you in the street and you not knowing who they are, but they know who you are. And if you're an asshole to them, well, they're going to leave with the impression that you're an asshole and they may not want to read anything that you've ever done again. I feel like I need to bring my old Sylvester reading lamp in here because I've got two lights and a skylight in here and it's almost 730. And my vision is pretty shitty, but we're going to start on chapter three today. And we're going to discuss as much as we can within our time frame. Because last time, I went way over. And granted, as I'm rereading this, I wasn't able to read much this week because I've been busy with work. And that will likely not change for a while as one of my coworkers is out of the office. So if you have any thoughts or prayers for her... I would greatly appreciate it. Adam unofficially came out to his family when he was in the 8th grade at the table over dinner. Susan had made spaghetti. Amy was going through a vegetarian phase inspired by a friend from school and was having only buttered noodles and salad. It began when Joel asking about an upcoming dance. So, at work today, Carol Bauman was talking about shopping for her daughter's dress for some dance that's coming up soon, Joel said, swirling his noodles with a fork. You're in the same grade as Julie Bauman, right, Adam? Adam nodded. Yeah, was all he said. Susan asked, is there a dance at school? She glanced at Amy, a sophomore in high school, and received a shrug. Yeah, but it's dumb and I'm not going, Adam said, and forked salad into his mouth. Ranch dressing dripped down his chin. He wiped it away. Joel and Susan exchanged a look across the table. Why not? Joel asked his son. Adam fixed his father with one of those classic teenager looks that could be interpreted interpreted any number of ways. Disbelief, outright shock, apathy, disinterest. Because I don't want to, he replied, and did not feel an explanation was called for. Well, dances can be fun, though, Susan pointed out. You get to dress nice and fix your hair. What's the dance for, Valentine's Day? It was the closest holiday. It's the sweetheart dance, and it's stupid, Adam said, and he rolled his eyes. And just calling it that is misleading because there are people going together who aren't sweethearts. And if I go just because everyone else is going and I ask some random girl to go with me, she might get it in her head that she's my sweetheart or I want to be her sweetheart, and I don't want any of that. Amy was snickering at her end of the table, but she held her tongue. Amy told her to, well, Adam told her to shut up anyway. 
Susan and Joel laughed. You're in the eighth grade, Adam. Asking a girl to a Valentine's dance isn't going to have her expectation that you're going to propose marriage. Well, you and Mom can go since it's so much fun, Adam suggested. There was an outright guffaw from Amy. It's a guffaw. Adam added, Anyways, I don't even like girls. Then there was silence. The kind that follows a statement no one is quite certain what to do with. Could you imagine if Joel had come out to Amy and Adam? We haven't even gotten to that part yet. Could you imagine if if Joel came out to Amy and Adam by saying, I don't even like girls? <laughs> I mean, that is a very interesting way to come out. Because it's almost vague because he's young. It's possible that he's a young heterosexual guy who just isn't into girls yet. That's not terribly uncommon, but yeah, he's gay. But Adam shares so many different characteristics with Ethan at this age, which is really interesting, but we haven't gotten to Ethan yet, and I don't necessarily want to talk about Ethan, but I don't necessarily want to talk about Susan either, and yet here we are talking about Susan Because the relationship between Joel and Susan, as I'm reading this and uncovering more, it's complicated because they're basically in a sexless marriage because Joel is having sex with men and Susan is also having sex with men. (laughs) But, yeah. Susan is sort of more like Joel's friend or his mother in a way. Joel laughed and said, We were all like that at 13, Adam. Only, he was still like that, and he had a feeling Adam would always be like that too. He hated himself for doing that, saying the kind of shit his own father would have said to him. The same tired platitudes. Adam didn't want to go to the dance because it was stupid, and he didn't like girls. Joel could totally relate. Yet, here he was, passive-aggressively pressuring his son into conformity. Boys asked girls to dances at school. It was... What they did, and he hated himself for it, even though he knew he was only doing it so that his own manliness, his own sexuality, and his own abilities as a father were not called into question. So it seems that Joel is trying to dance around Adam's sexuality because he's afraid that his own sexuality might come out. But in a sense, as I read, I'm wondering if Susan knew But it seems that Adam definitely knows, well, Amy knows that Adam is gay. So she kind of confirms it later. She goes up to Adam. She says, hey, do you really not like girls? And there's that whole conversation. But it's an interesting way for Adam to come out. And it's kind of a privilege for him to come out that way because there was a time when if you'd come out to your parents and you said, I don't like girls... Your father might say, well, what the fuck do you mean you don't like girls? And they might use some sort of um, bad word to describe you, some sort of gay slur. Uh, Wouldn't, I mean, that happened to me growing up. Uh, I would have conversations with my dad about girls. And I remember one time 
he asked me if I had a girlfriend and he kept saying, yeah, you probably have a girlfriend. You just don't want to tell me about it, which no, I didn't. And I said, well, what if I, I have some, you know, old fat lady in Alabama I'm screwing around with? And he said, well, at least I'd know you weren't gay. So there's that. But, you know, it's such an, a delicate situation and the way that Adam just brushes it off, that's something that he could do in his position with his understanding parents at that time and place. And maybe if had Joel had parents like Joel and Susan, maybe he could have been more honest with himself because there's a fear there. And it's always with your parents because it's not just that Susan died and Joel is supposed to come out. His parents have long died. The only person that is still in his life from that family is his sister Rhoda and her husband. So it's easier to brush off a sibling if they don't accept you, but your parents is a lot more difficult. We hide a lot from our parents because, frankly, that bond is not worth breaking over certain things and... Yeah, it's a big deal, your sexuality, but it's a big deal to you. And yes, your parents should accept that, but, you know, it always kind of comes back to that conversation that David Sedaris has about his father. His father's a Trump supporter, and he doesn't get into political arguments with his father because he knows that that conversation could be his last with his father. And in a sense, I try to treat every conversation I have with my parents like it might be the last, although I generally fail at that with my dad. I like to leave on good terms with my mother, but there's not a whole lot that we disagree with, and I, I think that if I were gay, my mother would accept me. My dad, maybe not so much. He's sad that you know, I wouldn't care if you're gay. I'd still love you, but I know you're not gay. So there's that. By the way, reading the print in this book is reminding me that I recently, segue here, um, I uploaded a new transcript for Demise of the Trinity to Amazon, and now it's over 400 pages because I changed the font to Georgia, even though it's still 12-point font, uh, it's a little bigger and a little bolder, but also I formatted it differently per Amazon suggested formatting, which I should have done to begin with, but I'm lazy as shit. And yeah, the book is 466 pages now, and I still don't have my own copy. How about that? My wife gave my copy to someone that she's friends with to read. For the sake of time and conversation, uh, my one-way conversation, we're going to skip ahead a little bit in the book here. We're going to get to when Joel tries to come out to his daughter and son and grandson. Adam stood in the gathering dusk on the back patio, if I can speak today, and stared at the rain-soaked ruin his mother's garden had become. Weeds and brambles had taken over, and what wasn't suffocated by dandelions or Johnson grass was brown and withering. It infuriated him at first, and he blamed his father. How could Joel have let it get so bad? 
I think that Adam harbors a lot of resentment towards Joel, regardless of his sexuality, regardless of whether or not Joel was having affairs with men on the side for years. Adam is a mama's boy, as they say. And I think that he feels that Joel is not properly mourning Susan, for one thing, but also there's always this the schism between them and he loves his dad but he sees his dad as kind of a liability in a sense and you see that in the beginning the way that he reacts to joel inviting him over amy is a little bit more accepting and she's sort of saying to herself okay something might be wrong but um J- uh, adam too many names adam is freaking out. He thinks that his father might have cancer or something. And that'll be yet another funeral to go to. Joel found him out there. What are you hiding from? He asked with a laugh. I'm just checking out Mom's garden, Adam said, and pointed his beer bottle at it. They stood together and gazed at it. Joel could sense the emotion of a man... A man... Zev, you used too many big words, man. A man-hating... A matting? Okay, let's ask Siri, shall we? Because I'm not a smart man, Jenny. A man-eating. Okay, so Siri has taken my pronunciation and suggested that it is a man-eating. So we're going to go to the Googles, and we're going to type in a man-eating. Manating. Uh, Manating. Because I have an English degree and yet I don't know this word. And when I'm reading, I don't really question words. I just kind of go with the flow. So let's turn up the volume on the phone and let's see what Google has to say. Emanate. 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 Okay. Do you want to get back to the book? I'm sorry. Okay. Fuck you. No, no, I'm just kidding. I love you. The emotion emanating from his son. Emanating from his son. But he couldn't be certain which one. Anger, sadness, helplessness. It's not unlike that conversation where Adam came out and he gave him that expression that could mean so many different things. Adam is kind of a one-note emotion person, but that one note... Is supposed to be an entire symphony. That was a good line. I'm going to keep that. Zev, you can't take it. But let's continue, shall we? Had he come over here thinking he would find it lush and verdant, a reminder of his mother and her devotion to it, which would remind him how devoted she had been to her children, to them all, really, Was it finding it in this state of decline, like losing her again in some small way? He opened his mouth to apologize, to make up excuses why he hadn't maintained it over the past year. But Adam spoke first. This sucks, he said, and took another drink of his Corona. Joel almost laughed. It was an understatement, if there ever was one. Well, yeah, it it does indeed. Mom would be pissed. Mom is dead, dude. Susan is gone. Your father is no longer married to her. They're married in spirit, I guess you could say, but 
she's dead. Their relationship is effectively over until the afterlife. And quite frankly, if they're not sexually active together, who knows what's going to happen? They'll be platonic partners in the end. Joel considered that. Were she still alive, the garden never would have slipped into such a state of disrepair. But he couldn't ignore that there were definitely things he could have had done that he sim simply didn't. I could probably come over and salvage it, Adam heard himself say. He turned to Joel to see if he'd heard it too. See, Adam is not direct with his father at this point. There's a fear there, you know. He doesn't really want to speak to his father. He wants to speak to Susan, but she's dead. So he's being vague while also being blunt about the way he feels because he's presenting it in a vague way. Joel's eyes were wide with surprise. Well, sure, he said, I guess. He tried to remember if Adam had ever displayed an interest in gardening or landscaping before and couldn't. I mean, I could clean it up, Adam said, because he didn't want to commit to something he couldn't follow through with. The Japanese maple seems to be doing okay, he nodded to it, where it stood through the, among the weeds. A car horn sounded, signaling the arrival of Amy and Ethan. There's your sister. Amy entered out of breath like she jogged all the way from Decatur. There's an Atlanta reference for you. I brought wine, she announced, and held up two bottles. Ethan sulked behind her. What's wrong with you, Adam asked him. Nothing. Doesn't look like nothing. They all headed inside to the kitchen. Amy rummaged through the drawers for the corkscrew she knew there was. Oh, God. I'm going to get through this, I promise. Joel handed it to her. <laughs> Why did I say it like that? I keep it on the counter these days, he said with a wry grin. Amy laughed. Within reach, good idea. She attacked the cork on the bottle of Cabernet Franc she'd brought. This is the first time we've all been together in the same room together since your mother Shiva. Joel shook his head and made a big tisking noise. We haven't even hugged each other or asked how we're doing. And with that, he swept Amy into a hug. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Joel shrugged. You know, I'm getting better, though. She would have interpreted that as him getting over Susan's passing. And that was part of it. But really, he was terrified of what he had to tell them. Honestly, he had pretty much talked himself out of it. But did he really need to tell them? He wasn't so sure anymore. Maybe he should just go on with his life. He was entitled to do that, and he had convinced himself. When they found out, there would be a discussion. He just wasn't certain there needed to be an announcement. Adam whispered to Ethan, Seriously, what's wrong with you? This makes Adam seem like Charlie Sheen in Two and a Half Men, does it not? Interesting dynamic there. I cannot recommend that show enough. Even though you probably think it's crap. That's fine. I mean, you can have that opinion. I just don't agree with it. Because I spent a good time going from season one to the end of the last season, which I think was season 12. Yeah. There was eight seasons of Charlie and four seasons of Ashton Kutcher. 
And although some diehard fans may say that the show declined in quality once Ashton Kutcher showed up, I actually disagree. It just changed. Anyway, back to the book. We're talking about an intellectual kind of book here, not this uh, lowbrow humor stuff from Two and a Half Men. The boy sighed. Dad's teaching me how to drive, and I think it's pissing Mom off, son, but I, I asked if I could drive over, and she got snippy. He whispered it, but Amy overheard. I didn't get snippy, Joel said. I thought this generation wasn't interested in driving or owning a car at all. You guys have Uber and tiny houses and things we old farts never imagined. Sounds like Joel's on Instagram. Who taught you guys how to drive, Ethan asked. Amy and Adam shared a look across the island, bursting out laughing. Ethan turned to Joel. Was it you, Grandpa? It was their mother. So, it's kind of this constant emasculation of Joel. Uh, His wife is always doing the things that a, a father might traditionally do. Although, it's not a big deal if your mom teaches you how to drive. My mom taught me how to drive. Uh, actually, uh, the driving school taught me how to drive, but my mother sat with me after I learned how to operate a motor vehicle for the hours that's required to get your license. So we have a whole thing where they talk about Susan being so Boca because she's originally from Boca Raton and da-da-da-da. We have a a whole thing where they're reminiscing. And you're, as you're reading this, you're like, well, Joel, just come out already. And I, I, this is what it's been all been building up to, for God's sakes. We want to know what the reaction is going to be. But guess what, people? It's not quite that easy. In fact, uh, he doesn't do it. Sorry to spoil that for you. But uh, Joel doesn't come out to them here. In fact, the way he comes out is not very pleasant or uh, voluntary at all. So, we have a scene where Joel wants to come out, but he can't bring himself to do it. It's, It's after they reminisce and look at all these photographs, and Joel is looking at the family that he's raised. He's remembering Susan, and to come out, it feels like, it would be shitting all over that for him. Uh, It's not what it is, of course, but Joel has a hard time accepting himself because he's afraid of the rejection from his children. Okay, that's a given. But it's also him taking the chance that they'll look at the marriage between their parents and see that it was a sham, really. Amy asked Joel, Do you need anything before we go? He shook his head as he regarded them, his grown children. They were both out of place here in the house where they'd been children and perfectly at place, like it had grown to accommodate them, or they'd not grown so much that they no longer fit. I have wine, he said, and he held up his glass as proof. She frowned, but moved in to hug him. I feel bad leaving you alone. It's been a long day, Joel said as they pull apart. It was a shitty, generic explanation for pretty much anything when someone didn't want to say what was really wrong. And what could he say? 
Yeah, kids, before you go, I wanted to tell you that I'm gay and that I knew I was gay before you guys were born. Then I had sex with men whose names and faces I can't even remember for the entire time I was married to your mother. But I'm fine, I promise. Well, call if you need anything, she said, and climbed into the passenger seat of her own car. Do not give me a heart attack, she said, just before the door closed and Ethan backed out of the driveway. Hey, I think I'll come by tomorrow and take a look at that garden in the daylight, Adam said, when he and Joel were alone. The more I think about it, the more I think it all it needs is some attention and it'll get back in shape before fall. I think your mother would like that, Joel said. Then Adam left and he was alone. He went inside, poured himself another glass of wine, and sat in the dark staring out at Susan's decaying garden. The next thing he knew, he was crying, and his phone rang. Kent. He composed himself as quickly as he could and answered, Hello. I was just wondering if I should call you. He tried to laugh, but it sounded like a croak. I was getting ready for bed, and I found myself wondering, okay, hoping, that you had changed your mind again and told them. Kent paused, and even Joel could hear that he was holding his breath. So did you? Fresh tears flowed. No, Joel said, and sighed. He wiped his eyes, sniffed. The first chance I get, and I can't go through with it. And who even knows if there'll be another opportunity? He heard himself and thought he sounded like a little overdramatic. So, he could only imagine how he must sound to Kent. But... He felt like a complete failure as a husband, as a father, and as a man. Kent chuckled. There'll be other chances. Joel sniffed. Are you okay? Joel, Kent asked. And his tone changed from mildly chiding to concern. I'm fine, Joel told him. But he sniffed again and gave himself away. Are you crying? Kent sounded genuinely distressed. Do you want me to come over? No, Joel said, and began crying in earnest. My God, what happened? Nothing, that's it. Nothing happened. They just came over. I showed them all the boxes Susan had organized for them, and they looked through everything. And That's when I was texting you that I might have changed my mind. Then we had dinner. Then they left. He punctuated his sentence with a sob. If this is what living openly is like, I'm already failing. He went in search of a tissue. Found only a slight damped dish towel in the kitchen. So he used that to wipe his eyes and nose. Personally, I would just take my t-shirt off and use that. But that's just me. I'm uncivilized. I'm coming over, Ken announced. And Joel heard the faint jingle of keys. It's the middle of the night, but according to the clock on the stove, it wasn't even 10 o'clock. I'm on my way. Kent hung up and Joel leaned against the counter. He wondered if he should make coffee. Kent lived in Virginia Highland, less than 20 minutes away, so Joel pulled another bottle of wine out and took down a second glass and switched the front porch light on. He met Kent at the front door. You didn't have to come, he said. Amy asked Joel, Do you need anything before we go? 
He shook his head as he regarded them as grown children. They were both out of place here in the house where they'd been children and perfectly at place, like it had grown to accommodate them, or they'd not grown so much that they no longer fit. I have wine, he said, and he held up his glass as proof. She frowned, but moved in to hug him. I feel bad leaving you alone. It's been a long day, Jill said as they pull apart. It was a shitty, generic explanation for pretty much anything when someone didn't want to say what was really wrong. And what could he say? Yeah, kids, before you go, I wanted to tell you that I'm gay and that I knew I was gay before you guys were born. Then I had sex with men whose names and faces I can't even remember for the entire time I was married to your mother. But I'm fine, I promise. Well... Call if you need anything, she said, and climbed into the passenger seat of her own car. Do not give me a heart attack, she said, just before the door closed and Ethan backed out of the driveway. Hey, I think I'll come by tomorrow and take a look at that garden in the daylight, Adam said, when he and Joel were alone. The more I think about it, the more I think it, all it needs is some attention and it'll get back in shape before fall. I think your mother would like that, Joel said. Then Adam left and he was alone. He went inside, poured himself another glass of wine, and sat in the dark staring out at Susan's decaying garden. The next thing he knew, he was crying, and his phone rang. Kent. He composed himself as quickly as he could and answered, Hello. I was just wondering if I should call you. He tried to laugh, but it sounded like a croak. I was getting ready for bed and I found myself wondering... Okay, hoping that you'd changed your mind again and told them, Kent paused, and even Joel could hear that he was holding his breath. So did you? Fresh tears flowed. No, Joel said and sighed. He wiped his eyes, sniffed. The first chance I get, and I can't go through with it. And who even knows if there'll be another opportunity? He heard himself and thought he sounded like a little overdramatic. So, he could only imagine how he must sound to Kent. But he felt like a complete failure as a husband, as a father, and as a man. Kent chuckled. There'll be other chances. Joel sniffed. Are you okay? Joel Kent asked. And his tone changed from mildly chiding to concern. I'm fine, Joel told him, but he sniffed again and gave himself away. Are you crying? Kent sounded genuinely distressed. Do you want me to come over? No, Joel said, and began crying in earnest. My God, what happened? Nothing, that's it. Nothing happened. They just came over. I showed them all the boxes Susan had organized for them, and they looked through everything, and that's when I was texting you that I might have changed my mind. Then we had dinner. Then they left. He punctuated his sentence with a sob. If this is what living openly is like, I'm already failing. He went in search of a tissue. Found only a slight damped dish towel in the kitchen. So he used that to wipe his eyes and nose. Personally, I would just take my t-shirt off and use that, but that's just me. I'm uncivilized.
I'm coming over, Ken announced. And Joel heard the faint jingle of keys. It's the middle of the night, but according to the clock on the stove, it wasn't even ten o'clock. I'm on my way. Kent hung up and Joel leaned against the counter. He wondered if he should make coffee. Kent lived in Virginia Highland, less than 20 minutes away, so Joel pulled another bottle of wine out and took down a second glass and switched the front porch light on. He met Kent at the front door. You didn't have to come, he said. You know, I'm over halfway through the book, and I still don't know what to make of Kent and Joel together. Are they friends? Are they lovers? Are they friends with benefits? Now, I'm going to continue reading this scene in a moment. But my wife called me out of the room because she's going to make brownies and she needed me to reach things because she's short. But, you know, other than my wife, how many, how many supportive friends do I have who would just come over at a moment's notice? I don't really have a friend like that. I don't really go out and hang out with people, and that's really on me because that's the kind of person I am. It's not that I don't necessarily not want to, but it, it always feels like an obligation. I had a friend when I was single who I used to do all sorts of things with, but something about me when I get in a relationship is I, I don't want to really deal with the outside world because I have my own thing that I like to do and I have my social interaction with my co-workers and classmates and also now Twitter. So it, it it's like I'm fulfilled in that arena because I am an only child so I'm comfortable being by myself or just with one person. But Joel spent so many years with Susan, so he had a friend. They weren't romantic partners so much as platonic partners. And when you analyze their relationship, they bonded through their kids. And in the flashback scenes when it shows Joel and Susan when she's still alive and she's going through her whole cancer thing, she is still sort of motherly to him, and she's telling him, well, you need to to get over this, in a sense, because our kids are going to be the ones who have a hard time, and I'm not going to be around to take care of you when I'm gone. So now he has Kent. He's sort of trying to find another mother figure in Kent, you know, but maybe that's just my interpretation, but... That's the way I see it. He sees Kent as someone who can guide him the way that Susan guided him. Joel heaved a huge sigh and leaned into Kent's chest. He tried to remember if they had ever been so close. Yet, even that first night they tried to hook up, he decided they must not have or he would remember it. But Kent smelled nice. And that was probably all the wine he'd consumed telling him that. But he didn't care. He felt Kent's lips press the top of his head, and he froze. But only for that half second before he pressed his face harder into that big, fragrant chest. <laughs> and then their hands were everywhere. 
Joel's and Kent's in hair, snaking inside shirts, fumbling with buttons and snaps, steadying both against the counter. Then, Kent's on Joel's shoulders, pushing him away and holding him at arm's length. Are we really doing this? he asked, breathless, his his cheeks flushed like a virgin's. (laughs) Yes, Joel answered, and his voice was barely audible. This is what you want, Ken asked. He needed to be clear. Joel nodded. Kent smiled, drained his wine glass, and grabbed Joel's hand, led him out of the kitchen towards the bedroom. Yeah. So one of the things that Zev told me is that someone got upset with him because there wasn't enough um, blatant gay sex in the novel, basically. And you don't really see that because, for one thing, the sex is not what the book is about. And also, it's not necessarily uh, a book about just one or two homosexuals. It's about a family. So when you pick it up, you're not going to necessarily want to read about gay sex, although you're not against that. You're, you're wanting to read about a family. So it's a book for adults, but it's not an adult book. So what did we get from this, this episode today? I think that Zev is tapping into a a part of humanity that a lot of writers don't. And you find that a lot of the sentimentality in writing, whether it be in books, television, movies, poetry, maybe even art, painting, sculpture, it's sometimes glib, it's sometimes artificial. And when Joel embraces Kent and they start going at each other, this is a real moment. This is a a highly emotional moment. And Joel has been spending his, his life trying to figure out what he wants. And maybe he doesn't want this in the long run. But this is what he wants now. And he spent most of his life running away from what he wanted in the moment, even though he was having affairs with them. So, this isn't just one gay man's experience. This is all of our experience with with love and acceptance, really. And we all have these moments in our lives where we come close to something that we could have. We don't always take it, though, and we later regret it. And sometimes the regret of not taking it is more than the regret you would have if you took it and you regret it, or you regret it later. And it's, it's hard to talk about because these are intensely personal experiences and the the connection between Joel and Kent that is something that even a lot of married couples don't have 
because there's an understanding there, and then there's this underlying desire for each other. So, Zev is an amazing, amazing writer in that regard, and obviously his his prose and his dialogue is on point, but the way he's able to develop these characters and their emotion is really something, is it not? Before we go, I am going to talk about something related to what I said earlier about Twitter in the writing community because I made a, a joking tweet about how people are excited for you when you're writing a book, but they don't necessarily want to read the book when it's finished. And that is a very disappointing aspect of trying to be a part of a community on on Twitter. And someone responded to that tweet, and the tweet was a joke, by the way. A lot of my tweets are jokes. And a lot of people don't pick up on that, but that's fine. And this guy basically mansplained to me that I needed to find readers and I wasn't going to find that in the writing community. Well, yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Of course we all need readers who aren't writers. Uh, But the fact is that my reader base has actually increased because of Twitter and the audience that I'm reaching and also the fact that there are writers who are supporting each other. But for the most part, it's not happening. That's the thing. And writers are people too. They read books. But unfortunately, it seems that a lot of people don't actually read. They just write. And if they do read, they're very selective about what they read, but they'll still try and promote your work. And then another person with their same mindset is retweeting the same thing, and basically what you have is a giant empty gesture. And to not follow me and to comment on my tweet and come at me in a way that makes it seem like you're doing me a favor when you're actually just pointing out something obvious and something that's also not true and to the extent that people who write don't read because it's like looking at it in a way that you're all facing the same direction. So it doesn't make sense to turn around when the people who are really interested in your work are right in front of you. No, it doesn't work that way. And that just goes to show that gentleman's response to me and the way our conversation ended. It, It goes to show how little support there is for each other in the writing community with these select people who view themselves as above all the other writers when in actuality most of us aren't really that good. Now, I was talking to Zev and I do think that Zev is better than most writers I encounter. He's that good. But he and I both agreed that 
my opinion of myself is actually a little bit above a lot of the writers on Twitter, too. The difference is that I studied it. I have a degree in English and creative writing. I have some legitimate publications that aren't indie-related. I worked on a craft for years. And despite the fact that I have two novels coming out in the same year, both of those were written around the same time over the period of almost a decade. So there's an expectation of quality that comes from that. And am I a good writer? I don't think that I am lacking for improvement. Am I a bad writer? I don't think so. I'll tell you that right now. Now, I'm humble about it, but I don't think I'm bad at all. Uh, My subject matter and my fiction may not be for everybody, but that's different. I write for adults, and I have an expectation of people who are of age that they have a certain amount of maturity. So if you pick up a book and you don't like it because there's violence in it, there's nothing wrong with that. But to kind of complain about it, like, ooh, icky. Yeah, that's something an eight-year-old would do. So I don't have much much expectation of that person in terms of analysis of the text. So this has been one long rant where I'm being a jerk to everybody. But I'm trying to be honest with you. And if you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you're not a bad writer either. You may not write at all, but the fact is that there are a lot of bad writers out there who have legitimate publishing contracts. And then there are really good writers who will probably never get a contract. They'll never get an agent. They'll never get uh, six figures from their work. And which one am I? I don't know. Because while I believe in my craft, that doesn't necessarily mean that I make good products. And our books are products, people. People are buying your, your work, so it's a product. But enough of that, because we don't like to be uncomfortable, do we? We don't like to, to face the harsh truth. We want to be comfortable. We want to feel cozy. So, enough of me being real for a change. This has been Patrick Attaway, and this has been Demise of the Podcast. I hope you go find a good book, and I hope you read it for a change.